Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now a part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have a returning guest, very interesting, very cool guy, Doru Paul. He's an associate professor of clinical medicine at Weill Cornell Medical College. We're going to talk about uh, the cancer book that I'm putting together. Uh, As listeners, you may know that I put together one on viruses. Uh, It's now on Amazon and Kindle and soon to be audible. If you go to Amazon or Kindle and you type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book. And I try to ask very provocative, difficult to answer questions about viruses and still make it accessible for the public. So you can check it out there. Uh, today, again, we're working on now the cancer book. So, Doru, thank you for coming. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, so let's jump in. Do you see that cancer is a, a self-sufficient, independent, living organism inside of a person? Or do you believe it's, it's just um, essentially a corruption or a, um, a bunch of cells acting individually? Or do you think they're acting, again, in concert and they constitute a separate living organism? So um, I've been uh, pondering a lot about uh, this question and uh, the model that uh, I'm considering now. It's a model in which there is a continuous um, interaction and uh, communication, not only between the cancer cells themselves, but between the cancer cells and the tissue where they appear, and also between the cancer cells and the whole organism. So I do not see cancer as uh, solely a disease of a cell that is uh, running crazy or even a disease of a tissue, but I see cancer really like a disease that appears in certain organisms that uh, will uh, 
so say, you know, prepare the soil for cancer, the macro environment, as opposed to the micro environment for cancer. And uh, the reason I'm saying this is that uh, there is data from the longitudinal studies that looked at the transformations uh, in the blood of uh, individuals over time. You know, there are studies like that going over 20 years in which uh, uh, different metabolites were um, uh, drawn and analyzed uh, from the cancer of uh, people. And then when they develop a certain form of cancer, you can go back and identify changes in their blood that happen two, three years before the cancer development. So what I'm trying to say is that in order for cancer to appear, you need a certain macro environment. The organism itself is giving, in a sense, birth to cancer. It's not disease solely of the cell, and it's um, not only the cell which is deranged in some way that you know this uh, genetic theory is saying, but uh, it's really a combination of factors at the cellular level, genetic level, and epigenetic level, at the tissue level with changes in the tissue, and at the macro environment that's the whole organism. So, I mean, I see it as a forced, continual maladapt- maladaptation due to, you know, again, continuous metabolic or otherwise stress in a given tissue. And the cells are trying to adapt, trying to adapt. They're undergoing epigenetic change. Their microbiome, their localized microbiome is probably changing. But at some point, the adaptation, I would guess, runs into a brick wall and they, they de-differentiate in the hopes of, uh, you know, in hopes of, uh, again, surviving. And this is what leads to cancer. That's my thought. What do you think? You can certainly think in these terms. <clears throat> I've, been, I've been calling this uh, maladaptation different programs. So what I think is uh, cancer is not solely of uh, a disease of a disorder or a disorder disease. So when you're seeing all these um, aneuploidies, all these uh, chromosomal changes uh, in numbers and quality or the genetic changes, you know, the mutations, behind this, there is still a living entity, the cancer cells. They are very different from the normal cells. This is true. They have a different um, a number of chromosomes, different qualities of chromosomes, but they are still alive. So behind this, there are some programs that um, are keeping them alive and functional. And uh, as you say, this is a form of uh, misadaptation to some type of uh, uh, situation that may be, you know, s- uh, stress at the level of uh, internally, the level of the, uh, the genes or externally at the level of the tissue. But you can certainly think in terms of uh, these uh, programs which are responding in a maladaptive way to these changes. What do you think happens first? Do you, what, like, what, how does cancer literally start from the beginning? Do you think there's only one way or there are multiple ways? And again, what's the, the order of new attributes that are acquired by cancer cells? Yes. So your question is really how does cancer appear? What is the first cell or the first cells? that uh, are making cancer. Um, first of all, uh, let's start with uh, what, uh, what is known. Um, we know that uh, there are some mutations that are present uh, in the genes. Are these mutations the cause of cancer? It's a very strong no. Why am I saying that? Because the same mutations, let's take, for example, the case of uh, melanoma, they're also present in um, normal nevi, the BRAF mutation that's present in melanoma cells. It's also uh, present in uh, normal nevi cells. The TP53 mutation that uh, you know, uh, has been uh, um, also uh, present in more than 50% of uh, solid tumors, it's also present in some cases of rheumatoid arthritis. So the genes per se are not the explanation of uh, cancer. 
is it one single cell that creates cancer or there are several cells? Nowadays, becoming fashionable, this theory of uh, polyploidy, that uh, there are several cells that are giving birth to cancer similar to this morula uh, that uh, is developing in the embryonal life, like this uh, grape uh, structure of several cells that uh, appear due to some uh, stress uh, conditions. This is really difficult to demonstrate uh, that uh, the origin of cancer is uh, this morula. There are um, studies that are showing that if you, if you take some um, cells and then you expose them to continuous uh, stressors like chemotherapy, at a certain point in the number of divisions, you'll see the polypoid cells appearing. But these are cells that are exposed in vitro to this uh, uh, type of stressors. On the other hand, in vitro, finding these uh, polypoid cells as the origin is not uh, as simple. And uh, uh, to me, it's not really clear that uh, the origin of cancer uh, stays in these uh, polypoid cells. Other ideas have uh, been there, you know, like uh, you have uh, an embryo that develops. So it's a fusion between uh, two cells that uh, are going to uh, develop cancer. But again, uh, if you look at uh, the number of chromosomes um, in cancer cells, not all cancer cells are aneuploidic. They have um, extra numbers of chromosomes. So the fusion idea, it's also clearly not universal. As you said, it's also possible that it's not only one way to develop cancer, that there may be different uh, mechanisms behind that. So it's not um, only the polyploid theory or the stem cell theory, which is another uh, theory that uh, has been popular, but uh, it's not really been um, uh, demonstrated uh, consistently in solid tumors uh, because there are other cells uh, that can be of the origin, which are more differentiated than, than the stem cells. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now, back to the show. Uh, so clearly, in different types of cancers, you may have different origins. What is striking, though, despite these uh, differences, is that the phenotype of cancer, the division which is uh, uncontrolled, and uh, the invasion and the metastasis is really common to many cancers, many different types of cancers. Now, is this commonality like a common evolutionary effect? It's difficult to think that evolution has um, uh, really um, uh, randomly selected for this type of uh, cancer phenotype. So I really don't think that um, uh, cancer per se is selected for by the evolution because uh, I don't really see the advantage for a particular organism to have uh, a cancer phenotype uh, selected, you know, uh, during evolution. So this being said, uh, immediately, because it's not selected during evolution, you can also think that the origin of cancer is not really in the mutated genes or the aneuploidy or things like, like that, but it may be, in fact, a combination of factors. Majority of cancers develop after 
age of 15, 90% of cancer they develop in elderly individuals and make the systems of control that are present both inside our cells, in the tissue, and also at the organism level, like for example, the immune system, after age of 50, they are really starting to fail and the apparition of cancer may be explained like this type of perfect storm that um, uh, happens at different levels, at the cellular level, at the tissue level and at the organismal level. This being said, I will also go into what is the primum movens. In order for the cells to divide, you need energy. And um, Otto Warburg has been uh, you know, introducing this idea that at the origin of cancer, you have mitochondria dysfunction be- behind that. There is some type of abnormality in the mitochondrias, and this is why the oxidative phosphorylation does not function, and you have the Warburg effect which uh, basically produces uh, ATP in low numbers in an ineffective way to produce uh, energy. So, but, but quick, quick question here. If, um, if we look at the hallmarks of cancer paper from tw- 2000 yes, and then the yes. recap in 2010, there right. are hallmarks that are common to many cancers. So what do you think the order of the appearance of the hallmarks is? Is there immune defense first? Is epigenetic change first? Is mutation first? What's next? What's next? Any insight into why and what comes first? Yes. So really, I think that the primum movens, it's the organism. So I consider cancer a disease that's um, a systemic disease to start with. So a decline in the immunity that is happening, you know, with age, with stress, with different other factors, I think it's at the origin of cancer. So you have transformations with age at the tissue level. You have these mutations that uh, you know I just described that are present, and then you have this type of perfect storm, as I said, between these influences from the decline in the immune system. You have the presence of some mutation. You have then the uh, tissue which uh, is affected is is not controlling the the local growth of cells, so the communication between the cancer cells and the normal tissue is defective. So. This is what, uh, in my in my mind, is the explanation. So I don't really think that the origin of uh, of cancer it's a sole hallmark. Like for example, the division benign tumors they have um, division that is uncontrolled. Cancer cells they are not benign cells. They have other hallmarks besides uh, just uh, cellular division. If you take the most essential, I mean the most essential, the essential hallmark of, of cancer, which is in my eyes, is metastasis. The, there is not something similar with oncogenes and repressor genes responsible for metastasis. The metastatic process, it's um, mostly an epigenetic process. And in terms of genes, there are some genes that um, are responsible for the um, uh, metastatic phenotype, but these genes are not mutated. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. These genes, they have um, some inhibition of their function at the epigenetic level, but there is no mutation there. So in terms of uh, what uh, Weinberg and Hanahan uh, were saying in the initial paper or the subsequent uh, paper that you have uh, you know, the uh, genetic instability or you have uh, the immortality or certain um, uh, changes in the metabolism, I think these are consequences and these are not the root of the disease itself. So the root of the disease is not in my um, eyes going to be found in only genetic changes or uh, only epigenetic changes. I mean, just think, in order for a cell to divide, it needs energy. 
This energy is coming from uh, really the uh, mitochondria and the metabolism. So you can think of cancer as being uh, also a metabolic disease. Now, is it solely a metabolic disease? I don't think it's solely metabolic disease. I think it's a combination of uh, metabolism, epigenetic changes, and genetic changes. What is fundamental in all these three? I believe that fundamental is really the metabolism. Why is the metabolism? For a cell to do different things, to divide, to invade, to go a distance and then grow again, you need energy. So to me, cancer is um, a disease of uh, energy and a disease of communication. These are the two, I would say, key um, uh, factors for, um, for cancer. Why do you think um, cancer cells have tropisms for certain organs to metastasize to? There have been several explanations for the tropies. The classical explanation was the mechanical one, that, you know, you have uh, certain capillaries with fenestration, so that's why cancer cells, they can go in the liver, they can go in the lung. If you take the, you know, the 10 more com most common tumors, you will see that uh, the metastases that mainly go to the lung and the, and the liver. So one idea is that uh, in the liver, you have more nutrients, and they go there because, uh, you know, they want to grow, they want to basically form colonies. Uh, when I'm saying once, uh, of course, I'm humanizing cancer cells, so they're attracted by nutrients in these locations. Another very intriguing and interesting theory is the uh, theory uh, of Dr. David Leiden that identified um, on the surface of exosomes this um, uh, nanometric particle secreted by um, the cells, a code like uh, a postal code that tells uh, where to go, like a sort of... Uh, uh, protein, uh, a, a protein um, a GPS system. So he found that a certain code would direct cancer cells towards certain metastatic uh, locations. Like, for example, you have this integrin code for bone mats, another, another integrin code for liver mats, another code for brain mats, etc. So he has um, uh, developed this um, theory of uh, precise uh, metastatic development due to this uh, exosome code. And this is how he explains the Paget uh, hypothesis that uh, certain cancers go to certain organs, like prostate, for example, going very often to the bones, or um, lung cancer uh, going often to the uh, brain or uh, to the liver. Uh, so he has been describing um, transformations of the surface of these exosomes that are uh, related to uh, certain places where cancer grow. Another idea that um, has been also described previously by the Masage group, Joao Masage at um, Sloan, was that um, there are different genes that are activated um, for certain um, uh, location of cancer. But again, the metastatic process is not mainly a genetic process. So uh, this theory of uh, certain genes related to certain uh, uh, metastases uh, destinations is not really, I would say, proven. So this is what, um, what it is. Now, in order for the, for the cancer cells to grow in a, a certain place, besides the cancer cells going to that place and being directed to that place, you need also other stromal elements. And um, an interesting um, idea is this triangulation between the primary tumor, the bone marrow, and then the distal site. So with other words, in order for the metastasis to, uh, to happen, besides directing the uh, cancer cells to specific sites with the help of these um, exosomal patterns, um, you need also uh, the help of this uh, bone marrow-derived uh, 
cells that are going to help really the distal development. Besides, uh, besides this, this being said, and um, you know the origin of the of uh, cancer cells and things like that, there are other theories, very interesting theories. One theory is that uh, when the cancer cells metastasize, it is not solely one cell or several uh, bunch of cells, like in a grape structure, going through the blood and metastasizing at distance. One interesting um, finding is that um, sometimes cancer cells they go at distance with a bunch of transformed fibroblasts that will help them to go there. So the the things are not as uh, simple that we think. Okay, this exosome code and that. Or you have, uh, you know, the bone marrow. Um, there are different, uh, probably, systems. And in different cancers, there are different mechanisms for that. Well, speaking of exosomes, what kind of communication do you think is going on between primary tumors and metastases? Is it like a master-slave arrangement? Is it a coordinated action amongst all different tumor sites? What are your thoughts? It is clearly the communication exists for sure. If we go back in... Um, 1996, 1997, with uh, experiments with uh, this angiostatin uh, drug that uh, has been uh, developed. At that time, the experiment looked like that. You take uh, 10 mice, and uh, in these 10 mice, you establish uh, some lung tumors, and you take uh, other 10 mice, you establish also uh, for control lung tumors. And then when you're taking out the tumors, you will see metastasis appearing in a distance when removing the primary tumor was associated with new metastatic um, growth. And then in the mice that you're giving this angiostatin that was identified initially from the urine of uh, mice, the distal growth does not happen. It was really like in all 10 mice in which angiostatin was uh, given, which is uh, basically vascular endothelial growth uh, factor inhibitor, the, the cells were not uh, growing at distance. So what was clear is that uh, the primary tumor was secreting some type of um, really molecule, and this is what angiostatin uh, was, that is inhibiting the growth of metastasis. So this was a formal demonstration of communication between the primary tumor and metastasis. Now, it's also the opposite. This was, uh, you know, the, the famous um, uh, experiment of uh, Judah Coleman that uh, did it uh, in the 90s. And then uh, this molecule really uh, never became standard of care in the United States. Uh, we had, uh, instead of this, um, we had um, the VGF um, direct inhibitor, Avastin, that was developed here. And the molecule, mm-hmm. uh, interestingly, the uh, angiostatin molecule was interestingly purchased by the Chinese. And it is stand-of-care in, um, in China in, uh, in lung cancer. But this is an economic discussion. So communication, another idea. When you take out the primary tumor, in some cases, has been well-described in kidney cancer, there was also regression of metastasis at distance. So here you see the exact opposite phenomenon. So in the uh, example of um, uh, Judak Foreman, you had... Taking out the primary tumor, you had the development of metastasis because the primary tumor was secreting this angiostatin that was inhibiting the growth at distance. In the case of kidney cancer, taking out the primary tumor was, in fact, making the metastasis uh, disappear. So you can see that this communication is not one way. There are different ways of um, influencing. Also, there was um, another interesting uh, concept that um, the 
metastatic cells, they can reseed the primary tumor. So once they're at distance, they can come back to the primary tumor and uh, uh, also help uh, the development of the, the primary tumor. So this uh, um, ongoing uh, interaction and communication between the primary tumor and the metastasis is um, very interesting. And, and I've been thinking as a sort of network that forms between the primary tumor and the metastasis, like a malignant network in which uh, they influence uh, each other. Again, they may influence each other in both ways. Uh, the primary tumor may stimulate the development of metastasis or they may inhibit it. And the opposite, the, the metastasis that may stimulate or, uh, or inhibit the, the development of the primary tumors. And then, of course, you have a, a development of second metastasis, both for primary tumors and from the first metastasis. So it's really a complex network of interactions. So you think there's definitely, I mean, do you think, do you think there's an emergence, again, as um, like if I look at cancer and I, there's just a few cells that are cancerous, how much... Uh, coordination is there going to be versus a thousand or a million or a billion in a tumor versus main tumor versus and you know in addition to metastases like what do you think the emergent properties of this i'm going to call it an organism are at at various stages of its development when it grows initially it is mostly the interaction with the the local stroma at a certain point when um, you have this um, uh, metastasis developing then the system becomes uh, more complex. It's also like um, like in the development. So you have initially, you know, I mentioned this uh, morula. You know, you have the egg that is growing in, uh, in the initial morula, and then you have the blastula. So you have different stages of development. You can think of cancer, some type of uh, malignant embryo that's developing. There is, uh, you know, like uh, pregnancy. It's, it's, it will be like a metaphor to, uh, for cancer, to, to understand cancer. So you can think that like the whole body is a sort of placenta that is uh, making this, uh, the, this cancer grow. So you have the interaction between the, the newly formed organism and, um, and the whole body, which is uh, the placenta. So you see that the interactions are in, in both sense. Initially, it's the placenta that, um, you know, the, the, the feeds cancer, but at a certain point, this malignant embryo starts um, influencing a lot the, the, the body in which it grows, and um, it's, it's, it's making it really very, very sick. And ultimately, this is why the patients die, because of uh, uh, the influence that, uh, that the cancer will have um, on, the, on the body that uh, made it uh, grow initially. So uh, these um, interactions, I think they're there. I mean, I would not call it unicellular form of life or a multicellular form of life. I would call it uh, more like uh, a dyscariota, like you have eukaryotes, prokaryotes, dyscariotes. So you have an, uh, a really a different, a different form of life. Why is it different? Because if you look at the number of chromosomes, it's not maintained, right? So you cannot say that it's something like, you know, like, uh, you know, a plant with the with, with same number of chromosomes or, or like an animal with the same number of chromosomes or, you know, or, or a being, because the number of chromosomes is variable. So it is um, really um, a very different uh, behavior. And this form of life is not... A xenobiont is not really like coming from the planet cancer in the body and developing this weird stuff. No, it's the body itself that it's uh, creating this uh, this type of uh, abnormal uh, dyscariota life form. So um, I would say that um, it is a different life form that may be even different from the uh, prokaryotes and the eukaryotes. So, I, I, you know, 
of course, you have multicellularity because you have multiple cancer cells, but um, the behavior, it's uh, both belonging to the eukaryotes uh, and the prokaryotes. So I wouldn't call it like some type of atavism in terms of a monocell, like, you know, a single cell or an atavism of the multicellular organism, but, but I would think of it as a really a different uh, life form. Yeah, that's what I was wondering. Okay. But at different stages of its development. Yes, absolutely. Uh, are, there any, yes. are there any particular right. emergent properties or characteristics that stand out to you that amaze you or surprise you? Does it, does it tend to evolve any abilities that, that surprise you? Yes, absolutely. So um, one thing is how fast does it develop, right? And you have this idea that, you know, it grows over years and it's becoming centimetric when you only when you have some type of like a vascular development. So you need vessels to grow beyond the one cubic centimeter. But in my experience, because I'm a um, clinician, I've seen growth and the metastasis happening within days. So it is not as simple. It is not the behavior is not uh, homogeneous. I've seen you know, a particular patient that um, was receiving uh, radiotherapy. And during radiotherapy, literally the, the cancer started spreading. And we are talking about really days and uh, you know, uh, less than a month. So the, the evolution and uh, the behavior of cancer is not something that uh, even an accelerated evolution cannot really explain things that are happening so quickly. So we definitely don't uh, know everything about uh, uh, cancer's uh, behavior. And uh, I, was, I will call it really metaphors. The fact that we're thinking of cancer as um, some type of accelerated evolution or some type yeah. of development problem. Or regressive regressive yeah. evolution, yeah. Right, correct, yes. Do you know of anyone that's looked at neoplasms and compared that to, you know, to cancerous tumors and to look for the differences? Because... I would think you'd find some interesting commonalities. Yeah, so, yeah, absolutely. So one, one, one thing that we discussed, so a neoplasm is really a new growth. So you can have benign tumors. So what, you, what, what you're basically alluding to is the fact that you have a benign tumor and you have a malignant tumor. So what is the difference between the two? Well, the benign tumors that don't really break membranes, that don't invade locally, uh, they don't spread at distance. So if you're looking at uh, different aspects in terms of uh, uh, genes, Again, you can have benign nevi that have the same genes. We, I mentioned the BRAF genes, which are similar, or the NRAS genes, which are similar to the melanoma genes. So at the genetic level, they may be similar. What, um, what is really, I would say, more specific for cancer is also this Warburg phenomenon, because in general, the anaerobic glycolysis is really linked to cancer. If you're going to compare, you know, overall the benign tumors versus the malignant tumors, in general, the in general the malignant tumors they, they tend to to have this uh, Warburg phenomenon. So, um, metabolically speaking, uh, they are uh, different. Epigenetically speaking, they are different. And also, I alluded to these uh, genes that um, are repressed, uh, the metastatic, the so-called metastatic genes. Again, this uh, this repression is probably. Um, related in particular to the malignant tumors and not to benign neoplasms. Yeah, I just didn't know what, what you know, if it's been studied, what had been learned. But um, how about, um, you know, the heterogeneity of tumors themselves? Has anyone tried to 3D map the, the heterogeneity and characterize it within a given tumor yeah, that's, and then that's, trace that's, back the clonal, the clonal lineages to see, you know, can you reconstruct using a computer how it formed, what came first and how it moved around? Yes, so 
these reconstructions uh, have been done. Charles Swanton looked at uh, uh, this uh, so-called trunk mutations versus branch mutations and looked at what was common between different uh, clones and looked at the mutations that were common between different clones and went back to see which are you know the first uh, mutations that um, are there. So this has been um, this has been certainly uh, studied and uh, and done. How can you use this information? One one idea that um, uh, Charles Swanton introduced is that uh, maybe you can uh, find new antigens that are uh, common between the different clones, and then you can um, have uh, this um, uh, targeted by either some type of intelligent T cells. Uh, or some um, antibodies, adoptive uh, T-cell therapy or CAR T-cells or other ways to target these neoantigens that are present on the trunk mutations. So related to the trunk mutations. Now, the heterogeneity is important. And uh, this is a very interesting uh, point because initially we learned at school 30 years ago that cancer cells are like a school of fish that are all the same. Nothing that can be, uh, I would say, more far from the truth. Now we learn with all this single cell analysis that every single cell in a tumor has different uh, mutations, have different epigenetics, and cancer is a totally heterogeneous um, um, environment. The, the tumoral environment is very heterogeneous. And um, in, in, for example, in, um, in certain uh, uh, cancers, uh, there have been analyses in terms of heterogeneity that uh, looked really to see if a more heterogeneous tumor in terms of uh, both uh, stroma and uh, immune um, uh, cells and cancer cells as the worst. Um, there, there have been um, a study that, uh, that looks specifically at that, and it appears that uh, at the tissue level, when um, heterogeneity is present, the prognostic t- tends to be worse. And this has been computed using the Shannon Index, the same is Shannon with the um, uh, information theory. So you can really uh, measure the, the heterogeneity in the tissue in, really in a formal way, as you say, in a, you know, by a computer. You, you, you can really right. compute um, this type of uh, uh, heterogeneity uh, there. Okay, so it's been looked at, but um, again, have they been able to reconstruct from the beginning how a tumor grows and again, what clonal lineages arise and things like that? In vitro, Research has been done mostly with some type of petri dishes where you put some cells, they grow. And then, of course, you have all the xenografts you're putting under the skin of mice or other lab animals, some cancer cells, and they grow. And uh, recently, you have um, this um, different uh, ways of uh, growing cells on, on some um, tissue mimicking um, environment. So you're having the organoids that have been developed, uh, you know, initially in uh, by research in um, in uh, Netherlands uh, with um, colorectal cancer. And then now we have it in uh, different uh, cancers. So basically you have really uh, the growth of uh, cells uh, trying to mimic as much as possible the, the growth in a tissue. So we're going from like Petri dishes to these um, organoids, but still this environment, it's a totally artificial environment compared to uh, the natural environment because in the organoids, you don't really have immune cells. They're trying to develop now organoids with immune cells inside. And uh, it's really just like a scaffold on which the the cancer cells grow. And you don't have all this variety of uh, environmental cells. Like, you know, you have the fibroblasts, you have um, 
macrophages, different uh, immune cells, you know, like more than 30 different immune cells. So the in vitro research is really very far and still in infancy uh, compared with what happens inside the, the organism. So in terms of um, 3D, if you're looking at um, what's going on, you will never find two cancers that are the same. And not only that, but if you're looking between a cancer and a metastasis, also the patterns of growth are going to be different. So by different, I mean, if you're looking to compute how many cancer cells are there, how many stromal cells are there, how many immune cells are there, you will find a large variety. You'll have, for example, in pancreatic cancer, uh, some pancreatic cancer, they have like 10% of cancers and then everything gets inflammation with inflammation cells, with modifications in the stromal cells, and the cancer cells, there are very few. And uh, you can think also of the fact that some of the symptoms of cancer are not really uh, due to the cancer cells per se, but to the abnormal response of the organism. You know, now in the COVID era, we've been seeing all these people, you know, in the ICU dying because of um, all this inflammation that is developing. And then we've been trying to fight it with, uh, with steroids and uh, anti-TNF uh, um, uh, agents. So something similar happens in cancer. Sometimes, you know, there's a lot of inflammation there and some tumors are very inflamed. You know, also some breast cancers, you know, this uh, presentation with breast cancer that look really like a wound. So they're very different. And um, if you look in the 3D, the differences are really striking. So you cannot really find two cancers that are the same. Yeah, but there would have to be some similarities or it, it's not completely heterogeneous or completely a mess. Like, yes, so... Um, even, if, even if you look at the structure of a tumor, I mean, they're probably like Pablo Picasso, but they're not completely random, right? Well, they're not completely random. And if um, you would want to know an analogy, you'll have on one hand something that it's... Uh, like, uh, you know, some type of like smoke, which is totally random. And then like a crystal that is completely organized. Cancer is somewhere in um, in between. Is it like fractal in a way? Does it have regions well, it is not, of it is order? Not, it, it, no, no, it is not really fractal. It's like, uh, you know, uh, there was this uh, chaos theory that was introduced to a person, I would say, some like 20 years ago. So it's like on the edge of chaos. So it's not really chaotic. It is not organized but it's on the edge of being disorganized, so it's in between. And um, this is um, what is striking. So there is some organization there, but it's not uh, this type of like, uh, you know, complete organized system, like, uh, as I said, you know, like a crystal, something very uh, organized, like a lattice, uh, like a organized network. It is not completely disorganized, like totally random. You brought the Jackson Pollock, which is a very interesting comparison because the Jackson Pollock uh, paintings are not completely chaotic. They uh, have been looked also at, you know, using, uh, I think, also Shannon Index to see what's the um, uh, organization of, uh, of a painting by Pollock and why does it appeal to, to our eye. And uh, it is not something which is completely chaotic like a jungle and is not something completely flat like a tundra. But it's something more like a savanna, and you have some trees, some, you know, so um, the Jackson Pollock paintings are, I think, a very good example for, for cancer, which, which has... Well, also like uh, Pablo Picasso, yeah. you know, he um, had pictures of people and things, but they were blocky <laughs> and distorted, but you can still tell, oh, that's a woman, that's a, that's a table, it's a dog, you know. Absolutely correct. So yeah, uh, I, I mentioned, uh, yes, uh, I mentioned Jackson Pollock, but uh, Picasso is another example. Absolutely correct. So what, um, 
if you look at primary tumor versus metastases and you characterize their heterogeneity and their structure and their, you know, Jackson Pollockness, what do you what's noticed between primaries and metastases? Has anyone done a study where they've looked at groupings of of hundreds of them in many different people to see if there's a similarity at least amongst the the primary and, and metastases? The pathologists um, are looking, you know, when we have doubts, they're comparing the the, the primary to metastases, and in general, probably I would say maybe giving a number, maybe eighty percent of uh, the metastases, they tend to have some similarity to, to the primary tumors. But uh, this is not always the case. And um, what, what is really interesting is that um, uh, this theory that uh, cancer develops in a really linear way, you have some dysplasia initially, and then you have some more mutations leading to some local growth, and then you have some invasion, like uh, a local invasion, and then metastasis is probably completely wrong. So what happens if you take a tumor, probably you're going to have some cells that are more, you know, um, cells that divide, like they have this program of division activated, some cells that have, um, you know, the program of invasion activated, and then some cells that have the metastatic program activated all at the same time. So it is really, I would say, a paradigm shift to think of cancer not as something happening in a stepwise fashion, but uh, something which happens in parallel that these things, the development of the primary tumor and the metastasis, they are happening uh, simultaneously. And uh, these are um, factors that are probably tissular factors and also organismic factors that influence the apparition and development of metastasis. Also, if you look on the scan, talking about the metabolism, you'll see differences. So a primary tumor may be, you know, having some hypermetabolism, but the metastasis may have less. Or the primary tumor may not have so much uh, hypermetabolism, and then the metastasis may have more. So also what they consume, if you're looking at the n- nutrition of the cancer cells, uh, they may be also different in the uh, primary tumors and the, the metastasis. The primary tumors may eat more glucose, metastasis may eat more glutamine or more uh, amino acids for the primary tumors and then more glucose for the metastasis. So you have different combinations of this and there is a clear heterogeneity, both at the genetic epigenetic uh, metabolic uh, level. What, what if um, if you took electronic health records of millions of people and you could see which ones had liver cancer, pancreatic cancer, et cetera, and you looked for commonalities, do you think anything would be observed? Yes. So if you take liver cancer, liver cancer is very common in Africa. And of course, it's common there because uh, you have uh, more hepatitis. So you'll find this um, commonality. So what I'm trying to say is that there are common things. There is this type of external environment that is transforming into an internal environment that uh, subsequently is leading to cancer. So, you know, alcohol in combination with smoking produces uh, a risk of uh, 30 times more of esophageal cancer. Um, then you have the BRCA genes that give a risk um, to um, women that uh, have uh, these mutations uh, in their genome of uh, 50-60% of um, breast cancer. So you will find commonalities. Yes, if you're going to take and look at uh, what was going on with uh, with those patients, you'll find things in common. You'll find things that are common in terms of the diet, things in common in terms of the environment in which they lived, uh, things in common in terms of the history. I just mentioned the, you know, the breast cancer. So it is definitely not, uh, not random. So that um, certain cancers appear in, in certain um, individuals. This theory that... Um, was discussed, you know, at length 
with this type of bad luck. I completely disagree with the bad luck theory. Okay, yeah, I just figured it was another way of looking at things. If anyone's done a, a you know, because you could have access theoretically to millions and millions of people's you know electronic health records. So I think it would just be a, a very oh, valuable yeah, source yeah, of yeah, data. That's no, no, totally right. I, I mentioned that longitudinal studies that were done and finding that uh, you know we can identify. Uh, uh, changes in the body long-term that the actual cancer develops. Also, you can look uh, retrospectively at uh, different factors. I did such a study in which um, I looked at what was the long-term survival with this uh, new um, epidermal growth factor receptor inhibitors, you know, Tarsiva, to see how they change the landscape of um, uh, lung cancer and how they change the five-year uh, survival. What are the factors are important for that? And, and to my surprise, it was uh, not uh, as much the, uh, these new drugs, the targeted drugs, the uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitor that would change the survival, but um, equally important or more important was the fact that uh, the patients that have long-term survival at distance, they had surgery for the uh, lung cancer that developed in both lungs. So they have surgery in both lungs. So surgery was in fact the really the intervention that um, had the highest association with survival at distance. So that's why I've been recommending, you know, since then I did something like like 12 years ago, I did the study, and I've been recommending to, um, to my patients, if possible, to, to have um, oligometastatic disease removed. Uh, and uh, I have now some, several patients that are following me, you know, here in the clinic. They have long-term survival by using this type of uh, idea that oligometastatic disease it's a different type um, of phenotype for cancer. So you have to be as aggressive as possible, uh, surgically-wise. Uh, viruses that cause cancer, what, what can be learned from their mechanisms and how do they do it? You know, in HPV and yeah. hepatitis, et cetera. What do you know about that? Yeah, so in, in HPV in general, the, the viruses are um, interfering with um, this uh, TPV3 molecule. So what is interesting, though, is that um, there are you know, approximately something like maybe 60,000 new cases of uh, head and neck cancer per year, and the HPV cases are um, increasing. What is interesting is that you have only something like maybe 0.01 of uh, uh, people that are infected with HPV that will uh, develop cancer. So, yes, we know now that uh, you have these um, molecules, these, uh, you know, B16 molecules that um, are uh, really um, interacting with the TP53, I'm sorry, with the P53 protein. And uh, uh, we know how it, uh, the mechanism of action. But the real question is, how come you have only such a minority of uh, patients infected with HPV that develop uh, this cancer? And also another fascinating question is, in head and neck cancer, why does HPV affect only certain areas? HPV tumors in head and neck are really only in the base uh, of the tongue and the tonsils. They are not present you know, on the anterior tongue. They are not present in the mouth. They're really not present in the larynx or pharynx. So it's only this location where, that is very, really high in, um, uh, in immune cells where it develops. So it's totally counterintuitive. You're saying, okay, you have this virus, you know, it's affecting the TP53, but why would it only there develop cancer and not affect some other areas, you know? So, you know, we know some things about uh, this. We know something at the, at the cellular level, at the genetic level, but... Uh, there are many other things that are not known and uh, questions that are definitely not answered. Well, very good, Duru. Last question. What uh, What do you see as 
as an advancement of cancer knowledge in the in the short term? Are there any promising you know avenues that you're looking at that you think in the very short term, one to five years, that will come to the clinic, or it's going to be a much longer haul than there? Yeah, so one to five years, I really uh, see the second uh, wave of uh, immunotherapy combinations that uh, will um, will become standard of care. We know now the checkpoint inhibitors, and we're going to have the data from combining checkpoint inhibitors with other ways to stimulate the immune system. So um, in the last uh, eight years, checkpoint inhibitors have been occupying more and more of the therapeutic arena in uh, cancer treatments. And I think this is going to continue for at least the next uh, five years. And then, of course, there will be more and more uh, this type of ideas that I presented with the organism type of um, targeting and um, also uh, influencing uh, you know, not only the uh, cancer cells or tissue per se, but um, influencing also the other um, organs, like, for example, the liver. Can we make livers that are really not a good host for metastases? Also, anti-metastatic treatments, because at present, we really don't have any directed therapeutic tool against metastasis. So we've been developing all these, you know, chemotherapies, target agents for growth, for the hallmark of growth, but we don't have anything for metastasis. So uh, this is something which is badly needed. And, uh, you know, I hope that really in the, the near present, we'll also have that uh, anti-metastatic specific agents, which do not exist now. Okay. Well, very good. Doru, thank you for coming. Uh, where, you know, for listeners, again, where can they find your particular research? Where can they contact you? Yeah, sure. I do not have a, a website the, that uh, is mine. There is no uh, dorupol.com or anything like that. But um, if they're going to uh, just put on Google my name and then um, Cornell, on my Cornell page, um, there is, uh, you know, a list of uh, the articles that I published. And also this idea of the system of cancer, if they're going to say Dorupol and uh, systemic hallmarks of cancer, they're going to find really a comprehensive uh, paper describing um, a lot of uh, the things I mentioned and uh, some more. Okay, very good. Duru, thank you for coming back. It's always good to talk to you and you have tons of experience, so I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.